The Right of Revolution. Select readings from The Communist, the former theoretical organ of the Communist Party USA, and the current theoretical organ of the Party of Communists USA. The Right of Revolution, an American Revolutionary Tradition, by A. Landy, July 1929. July 4th presents the American bourgeoisie with a deep and inherent contradiction. As a national holiday, hence as a holiday of the national state, it serves to consolidate the workers in support of American imperialism by means of the state. On the other hand, the tradition of July 4th is the tradition of armed insurrection, conveying the lesson of revolutionary action as the ultimate means of struggle against oppression and the exploitation. This contradiction compels the bourgeoisie to develop its own quote-unquote theory of American history, a theory adjusted to its present-day needs as ruling class and intended to preserve the capitalist system against the proletarian revolution foreshadowed in the history of Europe. The bourgeoisie cannot hide the skeleton in its historical closet. It cannot obliterate the fact that it owes its hegemony to armed insurrection and civil war. But to recognize the right of revolution today is to recognize the right of the proletariat to revolt against capitalist rule. And while theoretically, one could conceive of the capitalists conceding an abstract right of revolution to the proletariat, arguing that although it undoubtedly had this right as human beings, there was no need to employ it, since democracy obviates it in practice. In reality, the ruling class neither makes this concession nor dares to make it, at a time when the proletarian revolution is on the order of the day. Such a concession, which incidentally presupposes a progressive bourgeoisie and not a reactionary imperialist oligarchy, 19th century capitalism and not 20th century imperialism, would not and could not remain a theoretical abstraction. It would immediately become a material element in the class struggle, an ideological weapon in the hands of the workers, which would serve to strengthen their organization as a class and enhance the consciousness of their struggle. The Denial of the Right of Revolution The preservation of the capitalist system, therefore, requires a complete denial of the right of revolution to the working class. It requires a denial of the class struggle and the existence of classes, an assertion of the popular character of the state, and a propagation and maintenance of the fiction of bourgeois democracy as an adequate means of quote-unquote effectuating the popular will. It requires the sophistical claim that, quote, the right of revolution does not exist in America. We had a revolution 140 years ago, which made it unnecessary to have any other revolution in this country. One of the many meanings of democracy is that it is a form of government in which the right of revolution has been lost. No man can be a sound and sterling American who believes that force is necessary to effectuate the popular will, Americanism, 
emphatically means that we have repudiated old European methods of settling questions and have evolved for ourselves machinery by which revolution as a method of changing our life is outgrown, abandoned, outlawed. End quote. If there was a time when the bourgeoisie recognized the existence of a class struggle, and consequently of an historical movement, it was learnt better by now. Today it cries, Peter Pekavi, Father, I have offended, stubbornly insisting that, quote, there has been history, but there is no longer any, end quote. If, in its formative years, it recognized the right of revolution and sealed its right by victory, now that it has won its struggle for power, it commemorates its own revolutionary past by denying that right to the working class. Quote, we, it says, have made our revolution. We have therefore outgrown, abandoned, outlawed the revolutionary method of change. We do not need another revolution because another revolution in America today can only be a proletarian revolution. The quote, evolution of the American method of solving social problems by the ballot is part of the well-known racial myth of Anglo-Saxon peacefulness as contrasted with the, quote, Asiatic violence of the Russian workers. It is true, there are many characteristics in the development of American capitalism that distinguish it from the development of capitalism in Europe. But no one literate enough to read the facts of history can truthfully assert that violence is not a fundamental characteristic of both. The, quote, right of revolution does not exist apart from the material conditions and class relations that give rise to revolutions. As an abstract right, it is a pure fiction, and, at best, can only mean that the class claiming this right represents the interests of society as a whole. To the extent that the right of revolution exists as an independent entity, it exists simply in the form of a verbal or written phrase. The Traditional Right of Revolution As long as the bourgeoisie had not yet grown into an imperialist bourgeoisie, as long as free land permitted the fluidity of class relations, and capitalism had not yet entered its final stage of imperialism, the right of revolution was accepted as a tradition of American life. When the bourgeoisie of today tell us that the right of revolution died with the revolution of 1776, they conceal the fact that this right was asserted a second time, weapon in hand, on an even larger scale, in 1861. They ignore the repeated assertion of this right over more than a century by the most outstanding statesmen and figures of American bourgeois society. The American Revolution The Revolution of 1776 was an armed insurrection against a foreign oppressor. Led by a well-organized militant minority, it was not only characterized by the organization of the National Revolutionary Forces, but also by the employment of revolutionary means within the country itself. The War of Independence was in the last analysis a bourgeois revolution, which laid the basis for the independent economic development of the present United States. It was the first of a series 
of progressive national wars that characterized the epoch between 1776 and 1870. The slogans and political documents of the war were the direct expression of the economic class interests of the landholders and the early American bourgeoisie. And these interests coincided with the interests and future of American society as a whole. This has been sufficiently revealed by the bourgeois historians themselves. The Declaration of Independence is the concentrated expression of the very revolution which the imperialists claim as their own today. And yet this declaration asserts precisely what they deny, namely, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to constitute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles in organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. End quote. It is not in the interests of the imperialists that the workers take the declarations of their ancestors literally. Like the southern slaveholders who taught their slaves only those passages in the Bible commanding obedience and submission and avoided those passages that might inspire them to fight for freedom. Capitalist slaveholders today ignore the revolutionary lessons of the Declaration of Independence and instead drill the workers to accept the government and the system as, quote, of the people, by the people, and for the people, end quote. Before the Civil War The Revolution of 1776 did not and could not give absolute political power to the industrial bourgeoisie. First, because American industry was only in its infancy, and secondly, because of the predominantly agricultural character of American economy. On the other hand, the industrial development of America was definitely assured, and the growth of the industrial bourgeoisie together with its economic power prepared the ground for an ultimate struggle for political power between the slaveocracy of the South the industrial bourgeoisie of the North, representing two antagonistic economic systems. The Civil War, or the Second American Revolution, was therefore not merely the revolution of the southern slaveholders, but also the revolution of the northern bourgeoisie. The four years of war from 1861 to 1865 were only the culmination of the struggle that had been going on for decades, primarily in a political form. For our purposes, we shall look at only three years in this struggle, the years of 1830, 1850, to 1851, and the war years of 1861 to 1865. The growth of the, quote, irrepressible conflict, end quote, between the system of slave labor and the northern system of wage labor, the inevitable passage of political power to the industrial bourgeoisie confronted the southern slave owners with the alternative of perishing within the Union or of establishing an independent state of their own. Secession or Union became the axis around which the political struggle revolved in the South. 
When the question of the right of secession was raised in the early 30s, Daniel Webster, the representative of the northern bourgeoisie in the Senate, argued against secession as a constitutional right, but conceded what every American of his time recognized, that if the slaveholders found it necessary to make a revolution, it was their, quote, natural right, end quote. Quote, secession as a revolutionary right, he said, is intelligible. As a right proclaimed in the midst of civil commotions and asserted at the head of armies, I can understand it. But as a practical right existing under the Constitution and in conformity with its provisions, it seems to be nothing but an absurdity. End quote. Constitutional rights are the rights of the established order and the ruling class. Changes that would abolish the government and the system of the ruling class can only be accomplished by means of a revolution. Webster's logic is perfectly clear, and with the guns of Bunker Hill still ringing in his ears, he accepted the right of revolution for what it was, an avowed and undisputed tradition of American life. In the congressional elections of 1850 and 1851, the basic issue in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and other parts of the South was again the apparently abstract question of the right of secession. The Southern Democrats who supported the principle were opposed by another group of large slaveholders, the Southern Whigs, who denied any such right. But, what is of particular interest to American workers? These very slaveholders who fought the right of secession in 1850 and upheld actual secession in 1860 asserted the inalienable right of revolution. When conditions became intolerably oppressive, they asserted, and all other remedies had been tried and failed, there remained recourse in the last resort only to the inalienable right of revolution. Quote, this was the burden of the official and unofficial utterances of their officeholders, of the letters and speeches of their candidates, of the editorials of the Whig press, of the resolutions of local and state union conventions besides those which the Mississippi Constituent Convention and the Tennessee Legislature officially adopted under Whig influence, end quote. According to Cole, resolutions giving expression to loyal devotion to the Union would close with the declaration, quote, We hold ourselves in duty bound to maintain the government as long as it maintains us, but when it becomes our open enemy by some hostile act, if that time should come, then we should be for revolution and independence, end quote. The revolution of the South was being prepared ideologically. Quote, the Whigs declared that the right of secession was confounded with the inherent and inalienable right of revolution, a right nobody disputes and terrible to tyrants only. They made it clear, however, that it was not a right fixed by constitutional provision or regulation, that it was justifiable only in case of extreme oppression that its exercise meant rebellion against the authority of the general government and hence bloody civil war, a remedy which the existing situation surely did not require. End quote. 
This shows very clearly how deeply rooted in American life, how entirely undisputed, quote, the right of revolution was as yet. Had space permitted, the examination of the intervening years between 1776 and 1830, and from 1830 to 1850, the correctness of this assertion would have received an even more striking confirmation. Before leaving this period, however, one more quotation will be of interest. In the congressional elections of 1851, Hilliard, a well-known figure in the politics of the time, represented the Whigs in the Montgomery District of Alabama. Quote, The Constitution did not give any state the right to secede, he argued, but every free people have a natural right to rise and demand redress when the charter of their liberties is invaded. If the just demand be refused, they should overthrow the government. End quote. This was the cry of the slaveholders in 1850. In 1860, they exercised the right which they proclaimed as indisputable and began the Second American Revolution. The Civil War If now we turn to the period of the Civil War proper and look not at the slaveholders, but at their class enemies, the industrial bourgeoisie of the North, we shall find that they, too, acknowledge the right of revolution, in spite of the fact that they had apparently won political power by constitutional means. This fact undoubtedly gave their struggle to maintain power a legal form. But if the American working class is to learn anything from the lessons of American history, it must not ignore this significant fact that the conquest of power by the ballot did not save the industrial bourgeoisie from armed struggle, but actually brought it on. Even if the proletariat could take power by constitutional means, this would not obviate an armed struggle to maintain it and consolidate it. The destruction of slavery and relatively unhampered development of capitalism and the growth of a labor movement with revolutionary potentialities are all progressive achievements of the northern bourgeoisie and the Civil War. From the point of view of both North and South, this was the very essence of the Revolution. Practically all writers of the time recognized that they were dealing with a revolution, although Jefferson Davis, in his inaugural address, declared such statements to be, quote, an abuse of language, end quote. From our point of view, the interesting feature here is the reaction of the northern bourgeoisie towards this revolution. As defenders of the Constitution entrenched in a legal position, they could have done as our present-day imperialist bourgeoisie does and deny both the right of secession and revolution. But no one in the North, just as no one in the South, thought of denying the inalienable right of revolution. It required a political and economic entrenchment, the evolution of the industrial bourgeoisie into an imperialist bourgeoisie, the crystallization of a powerful proletariat, and the manifestations of an era of proletarian revolutions to transform the bourgeois assertion of the right of revolution into its denial. If the bourgeoisie did not deny the right of revolution in 1860, it was no doubt due not only to the historical potency of the traditions of the first American Revolution, 
but primarily to the economic structure of capitalism at the time. At the beginning of the Civil War, John Lothrop Motley, the well-known historian of the Dutch Republic, who had been appointed ambassador to Austria, wrote a long letter to the London Times explaining the nature of the Union and the causes of the war. According to George William Curtis, the editor of Motley's correspondence and his personal friend, this letter, quote, was republished in the United States and universally read and approved, end quote. Motley himself says in the letter to his wife and daughters, dated June 14, 1861, that, quote, the paper was at once copied bodily into the Boston and New York papers with expressions of approbation, end quote. In his letter, Motley asserts in the clearest possible terms the direct opposite of what the bourgeoisie wishes the proletariat to believe today. Quote, no man, he says, on either side of the Atlantic, with Anglo-Saxon blood in his veins, will dispute the right of a people, or of any portion of a people, to rise against oppression, to demand redress of grievances, and in case of denial of justice, to take up arms to vindicate the sacred principles of liberty. Few Englishmen or Americans will deny that the source of government is the consent of the governed, or that any nation has the right to govern itself according to its own will. When the silent consent is changed to fierce remonstrance, the revolution is impending. The right of revolution is indisputable. It is written on the whole record of our race. British and American history is made up of rebellion and revolution. Many of the crowned kings were rebels or usurpers. Hampton, Pym, and Oliver Cromwell Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, all were rebels. It is no word of reproach. But these men all knew the work they had set themselves to do. They never called their rebellion, quote, peaceable secession. They were sustained by the consciousness of right when they overthrew established authority, but they meant to overthrow it. They meant rebellion, civil war, bloodshed, infinite suffering for themselves and their whole generation for they accounted them welcome substitutes for insulted liberty and violated right. There can be nothing plainer then than the American right of revolution. End quote. Motley was thoroughly correct in asserting that he expressed the point of view of the entire North. Edward Everett, one of the greatest Philistines produced in America, indicated the same opinion in an oration which he delivered in New York on July 4th 1861. Everett combated the argument of the right of secession by a sovereign state. After enumerating a number of things a sovereign state, in his opinion, could do, he also mentioned her right to, quote, ratify and adopt a constitution of government ordained and established not only for that generation, but their posterity, subject only to the inalienable right of revolution possessed by every political community. But, he says farther on in the same speech, it may be thought a waste of time to argue against a constitutional right of peaceful secession, since no one denies the right of revolution, and no pains are spared by the disaffected leaders while they claim indeed the constitutional right to represent their movement as the uprising of an indignant people 
against an oppressive and tyrannical government. End quote. On April 21st, 1861, Wendell Phillips, for whom Marx had the highest words of praise, in spite of his bourgeois limitations, delivered an oration in Boston, affirming the American tradition of the right of revolution. Quote, no government, he said, provides for its own death. Therefore, there can be no constitutional right to secede. But there is a revolutionary right. The Declaration of Independence establishes what the heart of every American acknowledges, that the people, mark you, the people, have always an inherent, paramount, inalienable right to change their governments whenever they think, whenever they think that it will minister to their happiness. That is a revolutionary right. End quote. We shall refer only to one more statement in an editorial entitled The Right of Revolution, which appeared in the New York Weekly Tribune of May 24, 1862. The New York Tribune was one of the most popular papers in the North during the Civil War. It owed its success to the fact that, beneath all of its flirtations with ideas of reform, it was essentially an organ of the industrial bourgeoisie, as Marx, who wrote for the Tribune, pointed out. Quote, we, the Tribune states, have steadfastly affirmed and upheld Mr. Jefferson's doctrine embodied in the Declaration of American Independence of the Right of Revolution. We have insisted that, where this right is asserted and its exercise is properly attempted, it ought not to be necessary to subject all concerned to the woes and horrors of a civil war. In other words, what one party has a right to do, another can have no right to resist. End quote. The Tribune could raise the cry of a legal revolution only because the northern bourgeoisie had itself apparently accomplished such a feat. But the election was only the first stage in the last and highest phase of class struggle between the slaveocracy and the bourgeoisie. Parliamentary success was bound to be followed by military struggle. The idea of a peaceful revolution, however, is a specifically 19th century American product, which has its reflection in the faith of the American masses in the efficacy of the bourgeois ballot. And in spite of their denial of the right of revolution, which is in essence a denial of the proletarian revolution, even the capitalists foster this illusion. If you ignore the existence of classes, if you ignore the class struggle and the concrete conditions under which it takes place, then bourgeois democracy turns into pure democracy, and democratic parliamentarianism offers the best means of, quote, effectuating the popular will and abolishing capitalist productive relations. If you ignore everything that constitutes reality, you will accept the American tradition of the right of revolution as the socialist reformists do, but prove to the American workers that whereas the first two American revolutions were fought out on the military front, the third American revolution will be a peaceful revolution accomplished by constitutional means. You will point to England and the, quote, labor government as an example of the efficacy of the Anglo-Saxon ballot. But nothing so well reveals the bourgeois character of the idea of a peaceful revolution and its origin with the industrial bourgeoisie during the era of the American Civil War. 
Nothing so well exposes its absurdity as the entire history of the class struggle in America. The slogan of peaceful revolution today can only be a slogan against the interests of the workers. If violence is irrational and peacefulness is, quote, realism, it is the realism of preserving and extending the capitalist system. We have said enough to show the necessity of drawing upon the facts and traditions of American history in the interest of the proletarian struggle. A thorough discussion of the right of revolution in American history, however, would fill a volume. In this article, we have confined ourselves to the development of this right in the practice of the bourgeoisie and the southern slaveocracy. After the Civil War, the tradition of the right of revolution passes almost entirely to the labor and agrarian movements. Thank you for listening to this reading from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram. Join us on Discord. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.